I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the Beastie Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, I'm joined by Will Gudara, who is an author and a restaurant owner. And he's just written a fabulous new book about his story of building a restaurant chain called Unreasonable Hospitality, The Remarkable Power of Giving People More Than They Expect, which just came out October 2022 from Optimism Press. It's superficially about the restaurant business, but I I think we'll find that it has a lot to say to business and leaders in general. So congratulations on the book, Will, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. So I can imagine all sorts of motives as to why you wrote this book, Unreasonable Hospitality. But what was your what was your main reason for writing a book? Maybe it's it's good to start by explaining the the title a little bit, Unreasonable Hospitality. You know, when I look at the people that I admire the most, those who are the most successful across disciplines, CEOs, designers, directors, producers, athletes, they're successful because they're unreasonable in pursuit of the product they create relentless in doing whatever it takes to make that product its most fully realized self. I found success at my restaurant, 11 Madison Park. I was able to make it the number one restaurant in the world by choosing to be just as unreasonable, not just in pursuit of the product that we were serving, but in how we made the people feel that we were serving it too. It was being relentless in pursuit of connection. Well, that was that sounds like a good enough reason to, to write a book. And um, we're, we're going to dig into some of the uh, ideas in the book. But what were some of the main messages, if you're consciously trying to headline some messages that you were trying to communicate? For sure. I mean, the, the one thing, just to finish the, the point quickly, is I wrote the book right now because following COVID, following the pandemic, I think we've all gained this universal perspective, or at least we've been reminded, about our human desire and need to feel connection. I think that right now, the things that businesses across disciplines need to be focusing on most is being intentional in pursuit of relationships to be unreasonable in pursuit of connection. That's why I think the book is so timely right now. The lessons that come through it are centered around exactly that, how to be intentional in pursuit of relationships with both the people you work with and those that you serve, and how to dig deeper, to push harder, to be more creative, more unreasonable in taking the myriad of ordinary transactions we have with all the people around us and turning them into extraordinary experiences. Well, let's, let's dig into some of that. But before we dig into some of the more philosophical aspects, you have a very charismatic surface story, which is your purchase and turnaround and transformation of this very famous restaurant, 11 Madison, that indeed you were, were nominated the best restaurant in the world. Give us the contour of that story and some of the pivotal moments for you as a as a leader or a business person in that journey? Yeah, so I was brought onto the restaurant by the celebrated restaurateur Danny Meyer back in 2006 when it was a middling brasserie. We had two stars in the New York Times with the ambition to turn it around into one of the great restaurants in New York and, and across America. And we did so over the course of the four or five years that followed by really doubling down on excellence focusing on all the technical details that go into making an experience great. Better training, better plates, more refined food on those plates, a deeper wine list, more knowledgeable people serving the wine and the food, all of that. We went from two stars to three stars to four stars in the New York Times. It was, it was a pretty good success story. Then we were invited for the first time to join the list of the 50 best restaurants in the world. 
And we went to London for the ceremony. And the, the way that works is when you go there, you know you're one of the 50 best restaurants in the world. You just don't know where in the list you fall until you get there. And they start at 50 and they count down to one. There was assigned seating. And so I was trying to guess based on where I was sitting relative to where my heroes were sitting, where in the list we'd fall. I guessed 35. Then the list started. And I'm sure there was some amount of normal welcomes and thank you for comings before they started off. But all I remember was them saying, and at number 50, a new entry from New York City, 11 Madison Park. We'd come in last place. Perspective is what it is, right? We were one of the 50 best restaurants in the world. But in that room, we were last. My dad has always said adversity is a terrible thing to waste, and sometimes in the most profound moments of disappointment can come the biggest breakthroughs that can help you find success. Here's the thing. With a bit of time to digest the news, we came to a realization. Okay, it's patently absurd to say that one restaurant is the best restaurant in the world. What that list acknowledges is the restaurant that's having the greatest impact on the world of restaurants. The ones that had topped the list before us were restaurants that had pioneered new methods of cooking and in doing so had moved the conversation forward. I wanted to be number one, and I wanted it for the accolade, of course, but I also wanted to do it because I wanted to have my impact. But I realized that my impact would come not from moving the conversation forward and not from being unreasonable about the food we served, but from focusing on the one thing that would never change, which is the human desire to be cared for. Hence, unreasonable hospitality. I wrote that on a cocktail napkin underneath we will be number one in the world after perhaps a little bit too much whiskey the night when we came in last place and went back home with an audacious goal, an idea that I'm not sure I fully understood. Then, about a year later, one day during a busier than normal lunch service, I found myself in the dining room helping the servers and I was clearing appetizers from a table of four food lovers who were on vacation in New York just to eat at restaurants and They were on their way to the airport to head back home after their meal with us. And I overheard them talking. And they were going on and on about all the amazing restaurants they'd been to. Per Se, Danielle, Le Bernardin, Momofuku, now I live in Madison Park. But one of the guests jumped in and said, yeah, but you know what we never got to have? We never got to have a New York City street hot dog. And it was like one of those moments in a cartoon where the animated light bulb went off over the character's head. And I ran back into the kitchen, dropped off the place, ran outside of the hot dog cart, bought a hot dog, ran back inside. Then came the hard part, which was convincing the chef to serve it. (laughs) But I eventually convinced him to cut up the hot dog into four perfect pieces, and we made it look fancy, and I brought it over to the table and explained it. I said, hey, I want to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets. Here's a New York City hot dog. And they freaked out. You know, I'd spent my entire career serving foie gras and wagyu beef and lobster and caviar. I'd never seen anyone react to anything like they did to that hot dog. It was in that moment that I started to unpack what being unreasonable in pursuit of hospitality could mean. Great. Well, let's let's go there because your your title does sum it all up. This idea, unreasonable hospitality, that seems to have become sort of managerial philosophy for you. What, What sense do you now make of that phrase? What does that mean and what behaviors does that inform? Well, so what it means, and by the way, it's not just the people you're serving, it's also those that you're working with is making people feel seen, and it's giving people a sense of belonging. It's making them feel genuinely welcome. So in that moment, we can just break down that hot dog. It required a few things. One, being present, caring so much about the people I was serving that I wasn't caring about all the other things I needed to do. It was only through being present that I heard the line about the hot dog. Two, taking what you do seriously without taking yourself so seriously. I think so often in customer service organizations, we spend so much time trying to perfect these brands the way that we want the world to see us that 
we end up letting these self-imposed standards get in the way of us giving the people around us the things that will make them the most happy. I always say, a hot dog in a four-star restaurant is sacrilegious until you look at how it makes people feel. And then the third, this idea that if hospitality is about making people feel seen, the best way to treat them is not like a commodity, but as a unique individual. Unreasonable hospitality means that one size fits one. That hot dog would not have made sense if I had randomly brought it to anyone else in the dining room, but it made so much sense to them. And so those three ideas, if you can take those and channel them into how you connect with the people you work with and those that you serve, being present enough and caring enough about the person you're serving such that you can actually listen and learn what will make them feel the most seen, doing for them, what will make them happy? And another way of saying that is stop serving our egos and start serving people. And then three, finding these individual and bespoke ways to be more specific in the way that we treat the people we're serving. Right. So I'm just trying to think about what things could get in the way of that. And there are lots. You mentioned one of them, ego. I can think in, in the businesses I deal with routinization. You know, what you do becomes a sort of a, a blind set of habits. What are some of the things that make that simple thing that you just said about being present and, and addressing individual needs? What gets in the way of that? Well, first, trust. The relationship that any leader of any business has in negotiating their relationship with control and their relationship with trust. Because here's the thing, that idea, it only works if you empower everyone on your team to start doing it as well. It wouldn't work if it just required me listening to people and coming up with my own ideas, right? We need to give our team the permission and then the resources to come up with their own ideas and deliver those experiences to the people they serve as well. We actually hired someone onto the team whose only responsibility was to help everyone else on the team bring their ideas to life, right? So you give permission and then you give resources as well. But here's the reality. A lot of leaders struggle with letting go of that element of control. The beautiful part of this strategy is that everyone on my team now is able to come up with their own ideas. Those ideas were directly impacting the experience. They were no longer just salespeople, they were product designers. They were so much more invested in the experience because they had a hand in developing it, but there was less control on my behalf over the experience the guest was receiving. Right, presumably it's not just about relinquishing control though, because that could result in empowerment, as you just said, but it could also result in sloppiness or inconsistency around quality standards. Is it something to do with balancing control with empowerment? or It's not a total... No, but you are giving up complete control. I think a lot of people, when they're designing an experience, they want the experience to be received in exactly the way they design it. Yes, you're not giving up all control, but you're giving up some. And for a lot of people, some might as well be all because they can no longer control exactly the way people receive it. Right. But let me say this clearly. I would choose that every single day. Let me just, I'll, I'll name it. I'm sure of the thousands of experiences my team came up with for the people they were serving, let's just call it 2% of them were probably not very good. But I would always accept 2% of thousands being imperfect than 100% of 100 being perfect. But it's a much more scalable approach, and the myriad of impact is significant. The team is more empowered and therefore happier, and therefore attrition is lower. The guest is more happy because more of them are receiving these kinds of gestures. But I do understand that some people might struggle to do this because they're not willing or ready to give up control. Yes. So in a sense, you're giving autonomy to people, but that has to be taken up. There has to be a, a willingness and a hunger and a curiosity to take that up. 
How does this connect with hiring the right people, creating a culture where people are going to step up and use that autonomy you've given them? Because I can imagine leaders making this grand gesture of saying, you know, you, you guys are in control and, you know, it's the wrong people or the wrong culture. So it, it falls flat. You said the wrong people and the wrong culture. The gesture of offering up that level of control immediately transforms the culture in a positive way. And so I actually believe one starts to solve half of what you just said. The wrong people, listen, there's a lot of people in my business that say you can train excellence, but you can't train hospitality. I actually disagree. I believe that the moment you know how good it feels to receive hospitality, or better yet, the first time you know how good it feels to give hospitality, it starts to become an addiction. I don't believe there's anything more energizing than seeing the look of complete joy on someone's face when they receive a gift you're responsible for giving them. Sometimes what's required is just priming the pump, really encouraging people to do something like that once. There's something like that in my business, actually, in consulting, which is giving people a taste of their own full potential, where once they've tasted it, you know, they're, they're off to the races. But it's not such a simple thing to have the apprenticeship models that give them that exposure. So that sort of taste of the power of their own autonomy. Yeah, but the distinction between what you're talking about and what I'm talking about is you're talking about full potential, like, hey, work hard, you get your full potential. I'm giving my team the gift of being able to give other people gifts. It's not that big an ask. I'm just asking people to be creative. And very, very few people in customer service organizations are given the gift of being able to bring their own creativity to the table or given the gift of being able to show graciousness to others. So how do you set up that opportunity? What are the, in practical terms, you've got somebody that you think has that potential and you're trying to show them that opportunity for serving others. How do you do that? How do you prime the pump, so to say? Yes, yes, exactly. Well, invariably, my team always worked in teams, right? And so in any service station, there's four people serving a collection of people. The best way to start is when someone is not necessarily as inclined to lean in as other people, you put them on the team with those that are. And suddenly they're a part of a gesture, perhaps that's not authored by them, that they're a part of bringing it to life. And they get that dose of oxytocin that comes the moment that the gesture goes down. Now they start to get a taste of it. Then maybe you have an idea and you give it to them and you, you make it their idea. I think one of the most powerful ways to get people hooked on positive thinking is to actually give them their ideas and let them think that they're theirs. Because the first time you feel true, genuine authorship in something, that's when you get fully hooked. I think there's a myriad of ways. I also think, honestly, just publicly celebrating those that are achieving gives other people on the team a true desire to achieve. I wonder whether what we've been talking about here relates to an interesting concept in your book. You talk about the difference between restaurant smart and corporate smart. Could you explain that to us? Is that basically other words for the same thing here? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in the book that talk about the, the tension between control and trust. Restaurant smart and corporate smart is talking about two different ways to run a company. Any company that has a corporate office and various unit level storefronts where there are people on the front line and there are people in the corporate office. A corporate smart company has all of their highest paid people working in the corporate office. Decisions are made there. Restaurant smart companies have their most highly paid people in the restaurants. Decisions are made there. Generally, when one company is either or, the corporate smart company is the best business. They have the best controls, the best systems, the best measures that make the business a good business. On the restaurant smart companies, the, the restaurants are just better. 
because the people that work in them feel a genuine sense of ownership in them, and the people that go there can feel it. We've all been to some sort of service business where it's very clear that the person serving you has no autonomy. No matter what happens, if you're upset, they have no empowerment to make something right. And the level of passion you feel within those businesses is far diminished because of it. But invariably, those aren't as good businesses. They don't have the systems, the controls. Part of navigating the, the balance between trust and control is being very intentional, intentional about where you give it and where you don't. Although I think what a lot of companies do is they have controls, systems, rules, regulations, and those lists get longer and longer and longer. I'm always challenging companies to really challenge themselves on what their controls are and what their rules are. And it's almost like innocent until proven guilty to ask with every control, every system, every rule to prove that it deserves to continue being a rule in order for it to stay there. So let's change gears slightly and come back to this piece of advice that your father gave you. Adversity is a terrible thing to waste. We've just been through a very fraught time with COVID where, you know, the airline business and the restaurant business dried up. And, you know, I'd argue that these sorts of changes in business are never cyclical. You never come back to the, the previous normal. There's always an opportunity there for somebody. There's always a new normal. How do you read the impact of the COVID crisis and its aftermath on the, on the restaurant business? How is that an opportunity and how has the game changed, if at all? I mean, it's actually quite remarkable how when you go into a restaurant today, it actually doesn't feel very different from what it felt like pre-COVID. Restaurants are busy. Everyone's, you know, very, very successful. Again, it's almost like COVID never happened, save the fact that it's much harder to find good staff, right? I think a lot of people left the restaurant business. A lot of people left the workforce generally. That's where I think this approach becomes so important now. I think it's harder to hire people and therefore you need to create an environment within your organization where people feel a greater sense of connection to the thing you're doing. And empowerment is the best way to do that. And empowerment, when it's directly linked to the experience that your customers are having, to me, is a no-brainer. I also think that we've just come out of this one season of adversity and, well, it seems very likely we're about to go into another season of adversity. I think if the pandemic showed us anything. Listen, during the pandemic, people weren't missing stuff. People were buying plenty of things. That's why Amazon did so well over the course of the pandemic. People were missing connection. And so now over the past several months, everyone's been spending, spending, spending. It seems very likely belts are about to be tightened again. I believe, given the perspective we all gained throughout the pandemic, that the things that will be left on the list of where people spend money will be the places where they get that sense of profound connection which again is another reason to focus on hospitality. So if you were acquiring a restaurant business like 11 Madison now, and you look around you and you'd say, well, there's adversity, but there's also opportunity. Other than this sort of general idea of people seeking connection and adversity, what, what would you be seeing the opportunities being right now in the restaurant business? I mean, I'd probably be doing the exact same things I was doing before without, <laughs> without being self-celebratory. I think we were ahead of the curve on that. We were the place that was more focused on creating connection around the table than we were on the food that we were serving people. And I think that is what will be especially prized now. I mean, I think independent of 11 Madison Park, I think if the restaurant business has learned anything, and honestly, I think a lot of businesses could learn this lesson too, it's about monetizing your brand outside of your four walls and not allowing the number of seats in the room to serve as a cap on how high your revenue can be. 
I think a lot of people in the restaurant business realize that they weren't just restaurants, they were restaurant brands that could be monetized in a myriad of ways. And I think people are going to get in front of that such that they're not caught on their back foot should something like that happen again. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that in the sense that I can see how the philosophy you're espousing here can lead to a great restaurant in terms of a great restaurant experience for the diners. I guess that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good business. And I wanted to ask you what the difference is between the two. What's the difference between a great restaurant that's a great business and a great restaurant that goes bust because it isn't a great business? Listen, I think a lot of restaurants close because a lot of people that open restaurants don't know how to run restaurants. (laughs) But in the book, I talk about this thing, and I call it the rule of 95-5, where we managed our money like maniacs 95% of the time, such that the other 5% of the time we could spend foolishly. And I always put foolishly in quotes because it's not foolish at all. It's actually with great intention. 95% of the time, we managed everything to the penny. But that 5%, even though the investment was harder to measure, and when I talk about the 5%, I'm talking about all these gestures of unreasonable hospitality, it's harder to measure the return on those investments, right? It's harder to measure the impact of how you make someone feel. But, I mean, we had one of the most profitable restaurants in America. It was impossible to get a table there. And I believe it's because when you look at creating so many of those gestures And the ripple effect marketing that comes from people sharing stories of how they were made to feel. Listen, there's this quote often attributed to Maya Angelou. People forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, they'll never forget how you made them feel. When you leave people feeling seen, when you leave people feeling a sense of genuine belonging, the stories they go off and tell will keep your business full in perpetuity. Because it's much more fun to tell a story about how you got a street hot dog at a four-star restaurant than it is to tell another story about the perfect terrine of foie gras. And people don't collect things anymore. They collect experiences. The responsibility that we have if we're in the experience business is to give people a story good enough to help them relive that experience over and over again. So I hear a sort of an element of duality there, which is the big thing in my field. We call it ambidexterity, which is the ability to explore and exploit at the same time, or to be both disciplined and imaginative at the same time. So it sounds like your idea of 95-5. And we know that that's extraordinarily valuable. We also know it's extraordinarily difficult because it, it sort of involves a contradiction. Be extremely disciplined, you know, but also extremely imaginative. How did you manage that contradiction, that paradox of incredible discipline around the cash 95% of the time and uninhibited imagination around the other 5%? I mean, I actually don't think it's that hard. I think it just requires trying harder. And I think there's a big difference between those two. Some things are hard. Some things just require trying a little bit harder. Like it's not that hard to work out and eat healthy 95% of the time such that you can go eat cheeseburgers and ice cream 5% of the time, right? It's, It's less difficult than it is just trying a little bit harder to have some moderation in your life. You earn the creativity by being disciplined the other 95% of the time. But the creativity part, that actually enables you to continue being disciplined the 95% of the time. I don't know about you, but if I only worked out and ate healthy, it wouldn't work. I need the splurges and the indulgences to remind me that it's okay, right? That's why I think moderation is such an important approach to life and business as well. So I think a question on the mind of many of our listeners will be, can I apply this to my, my big non-hospitality business? And you know, I can see many elements here that are translatable, but presumably what you're espousing becomes more difficult with scale and complexity. For instance, in the book, I don't think you use these words, but 
I saw a theme of perpetual transformation. You were constantly reinventing the business to get from this fairly good restaurant by New York standards to the, to the world's best restaurant. Could you do that at the scale of a, of a large corporation, do you think? And would it involve modifying the philosophy in some way? No, I mean, I, listen, I think this most certainly applies to businesses beyond hospitality. And I actually, one of the big sentiments in the book is that I think every business can choose to be in the hospitality industry simply by starting to make this their focus. But there are two questions in there, right? First, does it apply to other industries? The example I love to use is a real estate agent. Every time I bought or rented a new apartment, at best, I've gotten a bottle of sparkling wine in the fridge as my thank you slash congratulations gift coming from someone who I've spent weeks, if not months, together looking for my new home. Imagine if that person, when my wife and I went to see the apartment we moved into the first time, overheard my wife talking about the nook that she could imagine herself doing yoga in every day. And imagine if when we moved in, instead of the obligatory bottle of bubbles, there was a brand new yoga mat and a candle with a note that said, welcome to your new home. A, that's not much more than a bottle of sparkling wine. B, it's insignificant compared to the average commission. And C, it will guarantee a lifelong relationship. When you talk about scale, and by the way, there's examples of that in every single business. And if you look closely enough at your business. Every business has a, has a customer. So yes, I guess you're right. When you talk about scale and bigger corporations, no, it's just about having a well-established enough hierarchy and letting empowerment trickle all the way down to the front line. People always say to me, well, what percentage of my budget should I be applying to this? And I say, I don't know your business. I'm not going to prescribe a percentage of your budget. For me, it was 5%. I always tell people to think about it in the same advice that I give someone if they're going to Vegas. Only bet the amount of money you can afford to lose in the beginning. And I guarantee you by year one or two or three, you'll increase that budget. But I think if people choose to be disciplined and systemized and practiced and setting aside a bit of time, money, and creativity to invest in going above and beyond in the way they're making their customers feel, the payoff is significant. So I wish we could go on for longer, but our time is nearly up. So maybe let me end with a few more personal questions. So you had this amazing success with 11 Madison Park, but you decided to exit the business. So I wanted to ask you, why did you decide to exit that uh, wonderful achievement? And, and what's next for you? What's the next big project? I think sometimes we get so engrossed in the thing that we're doing that we look back on our life and we only ever had one chapter. And I'm excited about having a second chapter. The first part of my second chapter involved taking some time off, writing a book and having a baby. The next part of my chapter is exploring the depths of hospitality outside of just a single restaurant. I've always said that in hospitality, and again, this can apply to any business, we have this opportunity or perhaps even responsibility to create magical worlds in a world that needs more magic. At my restaurant, I was able to do that for people over the course of three or four hours in a dinner. I want to explore what that looks like over the course of three to four days, really taking people out of their lives and seeing how far we can go with them. And is there a name of a, a new restaurant or, or culinary retreat that we should be looking out for or, or not yet? We're, we're, not, we're not quite there yet. Okay. <laughs> well, it's been a wonderful conversation to make this link between the world of hospitality and the world of big business. Thank you very much and congratulations again on the book, Will. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking to Will Guidara, who has just written this book, Unreasonable Hospitality, The Remarkable Power of Giving People More Than They Expect, out October 2022 from Optimism Press. I really found it a fascinating read from a very classical business perspective. I think the, the ideas in the book, observing new possibilities with customers, instilling a, a culture of passion, building innovation around observation, 
perpetual transformation. I mean, they're all very translatable, I think, into the context of business. So I found myself very provoked to think about those those translation elements, and I strongly recommend the book to any curious person in, in business. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback. <laughs>